This is the Rise City Church Sermon Podcast. We are a church in Gresham, Oregon, on a mission to rise up and saturate our city with the gospel. We would love for you to join us on Sundays. For more information, check out our website, rise.cc. Whether you already follow Jesus or are exploring Christianity, we hope that you experience the power of God through this message. Oh, how are we doing this morning, Rise? Oh, okay, let's go. Oh, man, my lifelong goal is to be greeted like, like Melissa is when she comes up. She just... She's, got, she's like the Justin Bieber of local outreach. She just has a little fan club. It's awesome. I love it. So I uh, love that you guys get excited to serve our city. So uh, we have been looking at what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. And as, what we started last week is this process of wholeness and healing and looking at this idea that we are made new in Christ. The old is gone. Goodbye. The new has come. And this, is, it, this happens in, in a moment uh, the moment of regeneration, this is theologically true. We are now new creatures, but the process is a lifelong process of being sanctified, of being molded more and more in his image. And in order to walk this wholeness and healing, we need to allow Jesus to do his transformative work into the pain and patterns of our past. And so what we're going to be looking at today is we're going to be looking at uh, healing from the pain of our past, because the pain of our past has shaped our present. I became uh, attunely aware to this when uh, I was a freshman in college, and I was in my dorm room, in the dorms there, I was talking to this guy, Aaron, and he said something to me that just like kind of triggered me. It, I just felt a little bit belittled. And so my response in that moment, I just like went way over the top. Like I felt belittled, so I just respond. You know how like two kids are playing and like siblings and like one like, like splashes the other, like oh, a little playful splash, and the other is like responds and like drowns, you know, wave, just drowns them. That was me emotionally in that moment, right? And so I responded bond that way. And he just looks at me. He's like, whoa, dude, what was that all about? I'm like, I I don't know. And I just walked away. Right. And so I actually went up to my room and I grabbed my Bible and there was an empty dorm room next to me. I I remember this day very vividly. And I went and I just sat and I read and I prayed and I I just was like, Lord, what is like, what is, what is wrong with me? Like, what is it? Why do I feel so defensive? Why, why do I feel so belittled by some small comment like that? What is this stirring up in me? And I immediately uh, was given this, this flashback to this, this memory that, in all honesty, I'd really repressed from when I was in fourth grade and I was playing basketball. And we were a really good basketball team with a really good coach. Our coach was a great coach and a terrible human being. And he would just belittle, like little fourth grade Jason would just get belittled. And I was a very sensitive kid. And so I would start to cry. And then he would, um, and he would just start yelling at me even more in front of the rest of the team. And he would kick me out of practice, and he would make me go sit outside while they would finish practice. But I never told anyone because I just I didn't want my parents to take me off the basketball team because I loved basketball so much. And so this actually shaped this this um, uh, response in me, this insecurity. Uh, this timidity, this um, I will never be belittled, so I'm going to respond. You know, I'm going to go over the top and react. And in that moment, it was such a such a huge thing for me to learn that all these painful moments of our past, they have to be dealt with. 
We actually have to let Jesus into them. We cannot sweep them under the rug and think they're just going to go away. Unaddressed pain, it doesn't disappear and fade. It decomposes and festers. And it, and, and it just sits under the surface, and, and it begins to shape our identity. And it begins to, to, um, to, to form lies about who we are and, and, and create patterns. And so what we need to do and what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through a process of identifying patterns and pain in our past. We're going to look at how do we actually break some of these cycles, and then how do we allow and why it's important to allow Jesus into our pain. And so the first thing I want to look at in this process is we actually have to identify the patterns and pain of our past. So how are you going to do this is we're going to look at a biblical theology of generational sin. Just a little lighthearted topic for the Sunday. Some of you guys are like, I wonder what we're talking about today. You know, I, I would love like a biblical theology of generational sin. It just feels like a summer topic. So let's dive in, grab a Bible, and uh, open to Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to look at this family, a particular family. We're going to look at four generations. We're going to look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we're going to see this pattern and, and multiple patterns of sin in their family and how it's passed down. Now, Genesis 12 is important theology because it sets up the rest of the Old Testament. It is when God calls Abraham, or Abram at the time, and he makes what's known as the Abrahamic covenant with him, where he says, I'm going to make you into a people. And ultimately, that's where the line of Israel comes so that, that God can bless them, and then all people will be blessed through them. And then ultimately, the Messiah will come through that seed. But Genesis 12 starting in verse one. I would love if you do have a Bible, I'm going to go through a lot of verses, but I think it's helpful for you to kind of flip along with me. I'll do my best. It will be on the screen if that's easy for you to track, but sometimes it's just helpful to just see where these things are in scripture. So Genesis 12, starting in verse one. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Leave everything you've known and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be blessed. This sets everything up. This is the call of the, the, the Hebrew people, that they are blessed by God, not because they're his favorite, but they're blessed so that all nations will be blessed through them. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this must be an incredible family. This must be a flawless, sinless, holistic, like has it all together family. So Abraham, he goes and he takes Sarai as his wife and all their possessions and they begin to travel. Now, verse 10, pick it up, Genesis 12, 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. When he went when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. So he's a romantic. He, he just loves his wife well. He protects her. He watches over her. It's just this beautiful setup, right? And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say, so say you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. 
And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. So so not only does does Abraham, uh, he, he, he is actually he's protected, but he's also given all these blessings, right? So he's given money and real estate and company equity and Bitcoin, like all these things, like are you just come to Abram, Abram in this moment. And he's like, this is pretty good, right? Okay. So one, my life is spared because I, because of this lie, my life is spared. Two, the tent's kind of quiet these days. Not a lot of nagging. I kind of like this. And three, he's rich. So all, all these perks that he's like looking at. Okay. Now, but the Lord, verse 17, afflicted Pharaoh. In his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. You looking for a coffee cup you know, verse right there, you know? <laughs> and Pharaoh, it's in the Bible, Okay. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And so we begin to see this glimpse into this family line where there's lying, there's deception, there's putting others at risk to save oneself. Uh, you think about Sarai's experience in this. She was, she's exploited for the personal gain of, of Abram. And unless we think this is a one-time moment, this is actually a pattern in Abram's life. Turn forward to Genesis chapter 20. I want to look at Genesis 20 verse 1. Now, Abram has been renamed Abraham and Sarai has been renamed Sarah, but they are the same, the same family, same characters. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Geb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abram said to Sarah, his wife, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Hey, it worked for me last time. Like, I'm just going to repeat this pattern. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And there's this dialogue between, between God. And Abimelech. And Abimelech's like, I had no idea I was deceived. And God's like, I know. That's why for your sake, I'm warning you in this moment. And so he goes uh, to Abraham, Genesis 29. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have, you, how have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. So what we're seeing here is this is not just a one-time blip. This is not just a one-time slip of character where Abram or Abraham makes a mistake. This is becoming a deeply ingrained pattern of sin that we're going to see passed on to the next generation. So Abraham, he has a son named Isaac, Genesis 26. And let's pick it up. And, and, and it sets up the story. And it sets up the story in such a way to, let, to help us see the pattern. Genesis 26.1. Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. He's like, hey, remember? Remember what happened earlier? Yep. And Isaac went to Gerar. Hey, remember? And to, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. These names should all sound familiar. Because this is the story we just read. Verse 7, when the men of the, of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. 
For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. He's like, hey, it worked for dad. And so I'm going to repeat this pattern. Verse 8, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and he saw Isaac laughing with Rebecca. Now, th- this phrase, it kind of in- in- insinuates intimacy. They're, ha- they're sharing this moment of intimacy. And he's, he's kind of like, dude, that better not be your sister. You know, like, what is, what is happening? And so he brings him in and he's like, wait a minute, I- I've been through this before. I've seen this pattern. I've seen this lie before. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How could you then say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. This pattern is passed down. It's repeated generation after generation. Now, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. They're actually twins. And it talks about how they wrestled in their mother's wombs. And, and, and one was clasping the, the, the ankle, the foot of the other as they, as they were born. And they're very different. Esau is this like burly, like hairy man's man. And Jacob is a little more poetic, okay? And so they, they, they are nothing like each other. And so the father, Isaac, loves Esau. He's like, that's my boy. He will get my blessing but the mother, Rebecca, loves Jacob. And so Isaac, he is going to bless Esau. Now, this is very different than what's in our days. But, but think of, there's massive implications to blessing. It has implications with inheritance and social status. But in this case, there's been a promise made to the grandfather about, about the Messiah coming through you and blessing coming through you. And it gets passed on to the son which is Isaac, and then it's going to be passed on to one of his sons. So it's almost carrying forward this promise of God. And what Rebecca says is she says, no, I love Jacob. And so we're going to deceive your father who is old and blind. And I'm going to put goat's hair on your hands. And I'm going to make you smell like him. And I'm going to cook a meal that you can give him. So then you can steal your brother's blessing. Great family. I'm so glad all nations are blessed through them. Genesis 27, starting in 18, it says, So he went, this is Jacob, went to his father, Isaac, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? So he calls out my father, and the father says, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to the father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game, that your soul should bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly? He answered, because the Lord, your God, granted me success. We're talking about this sacred moment in the family where the blessing of God is being passed down. And this family that has a pattern of lying, this family that has a pattern of, of, of exploiting others for personal gain, he's even taking the Lord's name in vain. He's saying, yes, the Lord gave me favor when really he's lying so that he can steal his brother's blessing. But Jacob, he he actually is blessed by his father, Isaac, instead of Esau. And so Esau comes, he comes in from the hunt. He has no idea what's happened. And he comes before his father to receive his blessing. His father, Isaac, said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, 
who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it before you came and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. I've already passed my blessing on. And Esau, as soon as he heard the words of his father, he cried out with exceedingly great and bitter cry. And he said to his father, bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. There's this favoritism that's now working its way into the family line, sibling rivalry. And we see this carried forward actually, forward actually in Genesis 37 when we follow the family line through Jacob's sons. And he has all these different sons and he actually passes um, he passes this idea of favoritism on, and he has a favorite son named Joseph. And the way he shows his favoritism is he gives him this coat of many colors, saying, my favor and my blessing is upon you more than any of my other sons. And so the brothers do what brothers do. They get bitter and they get jealous and they're envious. And so they actually plot to kill him. Instead of killing him, one of them speaks up and says, no, let's sell him as a slave. And so they sell him as a slave and they take the coat and they're going to deceive their father. And this is what they do, Genesis 37, 31. Then they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat and they dipped the robe in the blood. Then they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garment and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. These generational sins are deeply ingrained through four generations. We see lying and deception. We see exploitation of others for personal gain. We see favoritism with, with result that result in deep-seated sibling rivalry. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and they were all jacked up, and so are you. Let's all praise the Lord. Right? Okay, right? Right? This is, you're like, are you kidding me? Like, I thought my family was messed up. And it is, okay? And it's from the beginning. This, the, these, these patterns. And so this is why we have to do the deep work. We actually have to evaluate and inspect and walk and see what are, man, what are, we have to identify the family patterns of sin in our lives. We have to identify personal failures, that are still laying claim over our identity from our past, things that we did five, 10, 15 years ago that we still feel guilt and shame over, and they still have claim over identity. We have to identify them so Jesus can do his work. We have to identify the painful moments where you suffered sinful abuse and harm at the hands of others. Why? You guys are like, seriously? Like, it's summer. It's sunny. I was having a great day, and like, I don't want to do this work. I don't want to. I, I want to I follow the New Testament, forgetting what lies behind. I press forward. Like, you know, like, I don't want any of this. Let me tell you why. Because the pain and pattern in your past, they have shaped you into something you are not called to be in your present. Jesus is making you new. 
And in order for you to be new, you need to put to death the things of your past. You need healing. You need to allow Jesus into those areas. You need to allow his healing and his grace. And if we just keep sweeping them, if we just keep ignoring them, then it is going to be a cyclical pattern that passes down from generation to generation. Things from your parents' marriage and parenting is now being rooted out and fleshed out in your life here and now today in your marriage and how you are as a roommate and how you are as a parent. And we need to, we need to actually understand part of identifying is we need to name them what they are so we can respond accordingly. Here's what I mean. There's, there's three dimensions of sin that I just want to point out. There's sin that's done by you, but there's also sin that's done to you, and there's sin that's done around you. And we have things that happen to us when we're kids that, that as a child, we don't know how to process it. And so it usually manifests itself as shame and guilt, no matter what's happened. And we, and we aren't responding accordingly and we aren't allowing healing into our life. Look, look, when I was five, I was sexually abused by an older girl that lived up the street. But I had so much shame with that because I was five. I didn't know how to process that. And so I had all this, I never told my parents. So I remember being 10, 15 years old. And I was just like, man, I, it still just weighed on me. Like, I can't believe my, one of my first memories as a kid was, was my sinfulness. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe that that, 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 that happened. And it wasn't until I was married and, and some of these things started to surface in, in, in my relationships and in my shame and in my hiding and in my guilt that I started to walk a process of unsurfacing these things. And I remember sitting with a group of guys and we were walking through our story and it was the first, first time I ever even shared that. And, and I was like, yep, I just have a lot of shame and a lot of guilt over, that's my first, one of my first memories. And they were like, bro, you realize that you don't need to carry shame and guilt because you did not sin. You were five, man. You were sinned against. And I, it, it, took, it was like this scale falling from my eyes of like, man, I've been asking for, to, for repentance over that. And when I need to be asking for forgiveness, forgiveness in my heart, that God would, would heal me and, and shape me and be able to understand and look at this and respond in a healthy way. See, we all have these things. We need to identify them. We need to name them what they are because whether it's sin we've done or sin that's done to us or sin that's done around us, there is hope and healing in Jesus. That's what we need. That's the grace we need. And so we've grown up in these patterns of pain. Many of us, we, we look at our family lines and it's a pattern. There's many of us that we still carry shame and guilt that has a stronghold in our, over our present, over something we did long ago that we haven't brought to the feet of Christ and exposed to, to, to his family. And there, there are so many of us in this room that still believe lies about ourselves because of something shameful and sinful that was done to us. Jesus wants to bring hope and healing. It is so true. You, you need to just understand this. Your past, it has shaped your present. And you need to identify how. Because in Jesus, it doesn't have to determine your future. You're being made new. God wants to write a new story with your life. God wants to write a new legacy with your family. And in order to do that, you need to break the cycle. Isaac didn't break the cycle. 
Jacob didn't break the cycle. Like you need to, his brothers didn't. We need to look at these areas of our lives of repeated sin or things that have happened to us and say, that's not going to be carried on to the next generation. That's not going to be brought into my relationships now. See, because if you don't deal with the pain, it simply goes under the surface and it festers. And your best case scenario is you medicate it via distraction because we're afraid to deal, to walk down the road, but we need to identify the pain and patterns of our past and determine with God's grace and guidance, we are going to write a new story for our future and for our family. God is writing a new story. This is why I think counseling is so important. Can, can we just normalize counseling, please? Like, why is it this, like, why do we have this stigma around like, oh, I don't want to share this or I don't want to talk. Like, like imagine, imagine with me for a second. You were like, you're like, you felt that same stigma about going to like a medical doctor. You're like, oh yeah, like, you know, I'm, I'm really embarrassed to say this, but you know, my gallbladder exploded and I just, I couldn't handle it myself. I'm too weak. So I just needed a surgeon, you know? Or you need to check up to see what's going on and create a plan. Like, like you'd be like, you're an idiot. Like, what, like go get your gallbladder. You don't even need it anyway. Go get it taken out. Just make stones. That's it. You know, we don't know what it does. You know, welcome to 2020, right? You know, and so we need to normalize being healthy. We need to normalize dealing with the physical and emotional things that are happening within us. I, I remember having a conversation. I was sitting down with a guy, and, and he had a military background. I was trying to tell him, like, man, you need to go to, let's sit you up with a counselor. Let's walk through this. He's like, bro, I don't need that. Are you kidding me? And I was like, okay, let's look at this differently, okay? You're military trained, right? He's like, yeah. I was like, can you imagine going into war? without knowing anything about your enemy, having no game plan and just showing up like, let's rock, bro, you know? He's like, no, that would be stupid. I'm like, exactly. It's the same way with the emotional war that's happening in your heart and your mind. You need to be able to identify what's going on and you need somebody to help you create a game plan and a strategy to actually approach this. We, this is how we break the cycle. We allow Jesus in, we allow his church in, and we, we do the hard work of making war against the things that are doing battle against us. And so find a solid, biblically grounded Christian counselor and make war against the pain of your past and present, and then normalize it. Talk about it. Invite others into that process. Identify these unhealthy patterns that of your past that have been passed down through generation after generation and break the cycle. Say it ends with me. And so I, I, I want to, I'm just going to press on a couple and I'm going to make you uh, kind of uncomfortable uh, as I press on these. Not that we haven't gotten uncomfortable yet. Right. Um, but here's the thing. We don't grow without getting out of our comfort zone. And if you're not growing in your relationship with Jesus, why are you coming to church? Okay. And so let me just, let me identify a couple and call them out. Here's the first one. Um, a, a pattern, a family pattern of alcohol and addiction. See, some of you, you come from a long line of substance abuse in your family, especially around alcohol because it's the legalized version. Well, I know Oregon's adding new ones every day, but what, you know, it's the one you can buy at Fred Meyer. We'll put it that way. Um, here's what I want to say. Like, you need to write a new story for you and your family. Listen to me, drinking is not, alcohol is not sinful in itself. It's not. You cannot make a biblical argument for that. You have a, you have a real problem with the beginning of John and Jesus's first miracle, okay? Well, it was grape juice. Like, no, nah, bro, you had grape juice? Like, that's not that good, okay? 
It is not sinful. And for many people, it's actually acceptable. But what may be acceptable for some is a destructive danger for others. And I just want to call you, like, break the cycle. Like, it's not worth it. If you can't have a good time without alcohol, it's time to break the cycle. If you can't be vulnerable or brave without a buzz, it's time to break the cycle. If you feel better about who you are tipsy than you do sober, it is time to break the cycle. And if you're not willing to do it for you, do it for your kids. Man, as some of us in this room, we're, we're beginning a new generational cycle by the way our children see us consume alcohol. And we are beginning a battle that will last for generations to come in our family line. It is not worth it. This isn't legalism. This is freedom. Jesus has given us the freedom to be set free from our old patterns and our old lives and to write a new story. And so if, if alcohol and, and addiction is in your family line, man, would you just say, like, it's, it, it, would you have the courage to break the cycle? Here, here's another one. Um, anger and abuse. See, others of us, we, we come from a long line of anger, anger or abuse in our family line. Um, growing up, when, when me and my older brother and my younger sister were little kids, like, my dad was harsh with us. Like, he was pretty gnarly. And stuff that, to be honest, like, I just thought was, like, I just thought was normal. Like, that's just normal to be afraid of dad. Like, right? Fear the Lord, fear the Father, right? Like, it's just this, like, like normal thing. Um, for example, we would, um, my dad had this little red Ford Festiva, and we had a family of five. It was this like two door, like 1990 little mini, you know, mini car, right? And so we would all pile in the back and me and my siblings would fight over who sat behind him. You know why? Because when he got mad and started swinging in the back, like you could dodge him, you know, like if you're behind him. So we were very strategic. Like I thought that was normal. That's not normal, okay? Like, like planning where you're going to sit so your dad won't smack you in the head. Like it's not normal. But we took this road trip up to Canada and uh, we met my grandfather for the first time. My grandfather, when he was in his 40s, he had a stroke, and then he lived for 40 years after that, not able to speak or walk for 40 years. And so, uh, so th- this is, uh, that's my grandfather, Reed. That's my, that's my dad, Bruce. Um, uh, that's me in all purple, the, the, the thespian-dressed-looking dude who looks like he's about to drop the hap- hottest Apple product since 2000. Yep, got the turtleneck going, yep. And uh, my older brother, younger sister, and my mom. And so um, I remember this day so vividly, so vividly, because we met my grandfather, who I'd never met before. We walked into the motorhome. We all sat down, and my dad sat down and wept. Now, I had, I'd never seen my dad cry, and he wept like a child because his relationship with his dad was so broken his dad would just beat the crap out of him and his seven siblings. My dad, my dad said he has one memory of holding his father's hand. They were walking in a grocery store. One memory of his father telling him he loved him. And he was so abusive that my dad's older brothers in their late 70s, 80s now still have nightmares at night because of how harshly they were abused. And I remember my dad sitting there weeping and he just says, I never want the relationship with you guys that I had with my father. And that was a moment where he said he was going to break the cycle. 
And I watched over the coming years as my dad began to shift and become more patient and become more kind and actually become safe. Here's what I need you to hear. Because of the work that my father did, my son does not fear me. He does not fear me. I, t- I tell my son I love him every day, and he looks at me and goes, I love you more. I tell my daughter every day, olive juice, baby. And she goes, olive juice. It's just like our little thing. Like I, my kids are safe with me. And listen to me. Um, I don't spank my kids. I don't think spanking is wrong. But because I come from a family pattern of abuse, spanking is wrong for me. I don't yell at my kids. I yelled at my son once when he pushed my daughter out of a car. (laughs) The car was parked, right? (laughs) Uh, He hasn't pushed her out again. My kids are safe with me because the cycle has been broken. But there's things that I do in my life that are normal, okay, and fine for others that are not okay for me because of the pattern, the family pattern that I come from. Listen, drinking is not wrong. But because of your family pattern of addiction, drinking might be wrong for you. And you can spread this out over all kinds of things, video games, movies, ice cream, parties, certain friendships, certain music, like it's okay, these things that are just okay for everybody else, but because you've identified these patterns of destruction, you care about your kids enough to break the cycle, you're going to say, no, we're, we're, I'm going to be done with this. This is not legalism. This is freedom. The freedom of Christ that he bought for us on the cross This is what Paul writes in Romans 8. He says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. He's talking about a new legacy that we have in Jesus. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, And fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What Paul is saying is that God is writing a new family story with your life. Because of Jesus, we are adopted in. We can ne- no, no longer are we controlled by the sin and the pain and the patterns of our past, but now we're controlled by what? We're led by the spirit of God. It has power to walk us in newness of life. It has power to move us forward. And in being led by the Spirit, you can live a new identity, a new, fa- a new power, and a new family legacy. It says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery. So, yes, that's your background. That's, that, as, that's your background, what you were brought up in. Slavery to sin. Slavery to the Egyptians. Slavery to the law, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of what? Of adoption as sons. You now have a new name in Christ. You are no longer defined by your old family patterns of abuse, anger, and addictions. You are now adopted into the family legacy of Jesus, a legacy of hope, a legacy of healing, a legacy of redemption. This is one commentary explaining what adoption meant to the Romans. 
She says under, a, under Roman adoption, the life and standing of the adopted child changed completely. The adopted son lost all rights in his old family and gained all new rights in his new family. The old life of the adopted son was completely wiped out with all debts being canceled, with nothing from his past counting against him anymore. You have a new family legacy. It is the legacy of Jesus. If we would let him in and let his grace rewrite our stories. See, this is why we need to allow Jesus into our pain. Because when we allow him into our pain, he is the one who breaks the cycle. We don't break the cycle. He's the one who brings about healing. See, and one of the dangers, if we never go there, if we never assess, if we never evaluate, if we never walk this road, then all that sin, all that brokenness, all that's done to us of our past, it often gets converted into crippling shame. And what's so dangerous about shame is it tricks us into isolating in our pain. When what we need is the redeeming presence of Jesus and his people, we pull back and we withdraw and we isolate. And his book, Mending the Soul, Stephen Tracy puts it like this. He's talking about unhealthy or toxic shame. says it can never redeem. It can only corrode and destroy. It is based on lies and distortions about God, our sin, our worth, and our redeemability. The worst aspect of toxic shame is that it isolates us from God, from others, and even from ourselves. Since we are made for a relationship with our creator and with those made in his image, isolation is a debilitating result of shame. See, this is the great irony. As we try to cover it up and it festers and it grows into shame and it becomes the thing that hinders us from healing, hinders us from receiving the healing power of Jesus. We need Jesus to heal us. There's this story in the gospel of Mark, about this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And because of this, she is ceremonially unclean. She has to, she's removed from all community, all connection, all relationship. And she has been isolated and alone just to sit in her shame. No one has been able to heal her and she sees Jesus. And it tells us in the Old Testament that when the Messiah comes, he will have healing in his wings. And when Jesus is walking around, what he's wearing is that he has a shawl and it has these fringes around it. It's called the wings. And so she walks up to him, breaks through this crowd and has the courage to touch, says the fringe of his cloak. And in doing so, she's declaring, no, I believe you are the Messiah. I believe you are the healer. And Jesus stops. You know why he stops? He says, because he feels, people are like, what, what do you mean Jesus? What do you mean somebody touched you? He, he stops because he feels power leave his body. And so he says, who touched me? See, when we allow Jesus into our pain, you know what happens? He takes all our pain and all our guilt and all our shame and all our failures and all our sin upon himself and we receive his healing. We receive his new nature. We receive his hope. This is why we come to Jesus. This is why we have to let him in into these places. This is why we have to do this hard, painful work of walking this road. 
I was having a conversation with a friend of mine this week about this very subject. And she was telling me about how when she was a young girl, her grandfather had this workshop. Uh, he was a cabinet maker. And the kids and all her, all her cousins and sisters, they would always love going into the workshop. It was out behind their house in the woods. And she said there was always fresh sawdust, piles of sawdust we'd grab and throw. And there was candy there. And it's just this sacred space. But what none of her sisters or cousins knew when she was about four or five years old, um, her grandfather would take her back there and would, would abuse her. And it was just this repressed memory of just pain and shame for decades. She never told anyone. Sold the house, the workshop torn down. One of her cousins one year, when she's in her 30s or 40s, uh, decided you know what would be a special memory is if I painted this workshop and I gave it, gave it to all the cousins and they all opened it one Christmas, this big painting of this, of this workshop. And she said she just like opened it up and just immediately felt like she was kicked in the chest. All those memories, all that pain of that place. Now what's incredible to me is I was talking to her about it and she, is, she sent me this yesterday. She's kept this painting for like 20 years now. And I just asked her, I'm like, what, like, what, like why? Like, why would, after all, all it represents and all it means, like, why would you keep this? And she says, you know, the thing is, Jesus has healed me of that. And I don't know why, but for some way and some reason, I just feel like God wants to use my story to offer hope and healing to someone else. See, because of Jesus' healing, this pain of her past doesn't have power over her anymore. This is what we need in Jesus. I love what Paul Tripp says. He says, we must not offer people a system of redemption, a set of insights and principles. We offer people a redeemer. This is not about a process. This is about a person. We don't offer people a system of healing. We offer an actual healer. You are not offered a scheme to break cycles. You are offered a cycle breaker. God does not give us a strategy to, to make a way. God gives us the way maker. Amen? That is what we build. Our, it's Jesus, and that's the only healing. This is why this prophecy in Isaiah 53 is so powerful and it's what we need. It says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man, suffer, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. But the fact is, it was our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried, our disfigurements, all our sin and shame that brought him low. We thought he brought it upon himself that God was punishing him for his own failures, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And just let that phrase just sit over you for a minute. With his wounds, we are healed. 
Jesus, we, we bring all our pain. We bring uh, this generational patterns that we have. We bring it all to you because only you offer hope and healing. Lord, as we walk this road of wholeness, of being made new in your image, would you just give us courage and boldness and strength to open our hearts up to your healing and your grace that we can receive forgiveness for where we've fallen short. We can receive healing for what has been done to us. And we can offer a story of reconciliation in response to others. But it is only by your grace. Lord, would you do this work in us? We pray this by your name.